I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. Don't miss Cold's new Season 3, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts. Inside Sources with Boyd Matheson. We are standing by waiting for President Biden. Uh, He's been delayed again, so we're just uh, holding on, waiting for the president to step to the microphone. The White House, of course, believes it has a lot of leverage with the Taliban. The question is, is that really true? A lot of analysts have some pretty serious doubts about that. Uh, Press Secretary Jen Psaki told reporters that we do have leverage over the Taliban uh, in a number of ways. We have an enormous amount of leverage, including access to the global marketplace, which is not a small piece of leverage to the Taliban, who are now overseeing large swaths of Afghanistan. Of course, uh, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said the U.S. has leverage as well to ensure we get all of our citizens uh, out and others who want to leave the country. This is what he said over the weekend. We do believe that the United States of America possesses substantial leverage to ensure that American citizens and others get safe passage out of that country. And that if they do not, we can bring to bear enormous pressure on the Taliban with a swift and forceful response to their blocking any American citizen, whether before August 31st or after August 31st. That's not about trust. That's about the capabilities we have to hold the Taliban to the commitments that they have voiced directly and the commitments that they have made publicly. So between the uh, White House advisors, Jake Sullivan, Jen Psaki, and the president himself, uh, they all seem to think there is great leverage there against the Taliban in terms of moving forward. Uh, What are those who maybe is saying not so fast uh, that what Biden believes he has uh, may be something we should be worried about if he believes he has leverage? Michael Rubin is a senior fellow at American Enterprise Institute. He's a former Pentagon official who's worked in Iran and Yemen and spent time amongst the Taliban. He joins us on the line now. Michael, thanks for jumping on. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, So you're uh, one of those that uh, is questioning how confident we should be in the leverage uh, the president seems to believe we have. Well, less questioning and more worried. Mm. The main source of economic leverage we have is the fact that Afghanistan's reserves of $9.4 billion dollars Um, largely sit in American banks, and the Taliban certainly would like to get access to that. The question is whether we're entering into a hostage negotiation in which we would release that sort of money, the largest ransom ever paid, and what the Taliban might do with it. Certainly, if we release even a little bit of that money, that implies diplomatic recognition of the Taliban, which itself is problematic. Yeah, and uh, thank you for clarifying on that in terms of the the, the worry, uh, because I do think that's an important thing in terms of the rhetorical battles that are out there as well. And uh, I do think there is cause for concern, for sure. Uh, and so the question then becomes, so what what do we do? What leverage do we have if it's not the economics, uh, the military? What else is there? How else are you seeing this? Again, from your unique experience and background with the Taliban, uh, how, how do you see that? Is there any room for, for leverage? Well, certainly Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, also implied that perhaps there could be some military leverage as well. Again, I would be very, very worried about his assumptions simply because um, much of the intelligence which 
the any sort of military action depends upon uh, was garnered because we had forces on the ground in contact with Afghans. That flow is slowing to a trickle now, and it could it could dry up. Um, so even while Jake Sullivan is right, we do have drones, and we can um, utilize those drones. The question is whether we would be operating blind. Um, into the future. And the other issue, of course, is are we simply going back to a situation as we did under President Obama, where we rely on drones, play whack-a-mole, but ultimately don't um, actually advance in the war against her? Yeah, and I think that's an important point in that is that uh, what do we do to advance the war on terror to make sure we are uh, keeping the country safe, our national interests safe? Uh, from your perspective, Michael, what what do you think the bargaining chips are with the Taliban are there are there any or do we just need to be thinking differently about this well in the short term there's the issue about whether we would provide any support uh, any sort of support for the resistance which is gathering in the Panjir Valley led by the former intelligence minister um, the former vice president Amrullah Saleh and the son of Ahmed Shah Massoud who um, led the resistance in the northern alliance before 9-11 that's number one. But ultimately, it's also important not to just look at the Taliban as an indigenous force. Mm. The Taliban are to Pakistan what Hezbollah is to Iran. Um, and therefore, the question then comes, could we assert any sort of leverage on Pakistan to cut off its support to the Taliban? Why is Pakistan, which is celebrating the Taliban victory, for example, still considered a major non-NATO ally? Why aren't they designated a state sponsor of terrorism? Why aren't we providing a greater qualitative military edge to their chief rival, India, uh, in exchange for their compliance? Remember, up to 90% of the explosives which the Taliban used for their various car bombs came from one of two Pakistani fertilizer plants uh, that Pakistan consistently refused to monitor or close down. We do have leverage there. Oh, fantastic. Great insight. Uh, uh, we're getting today from Michael Rubin, again, a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, former Pentagon official, uh, worked in Iran, Yemen, and again, spent time amongst the Taliban. Michael, appreciate your perspective uh, and your insight on this crucial topic today. Thank you for having me. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen.